He called me Ishmael, an original story, the story of the narrator and lone survivor of the Pequod in the hunt for Moby Dick the Whale, adapted from Herman Melville's original, Volume 1, Chapter 1. He called me Ishmael, although I can't say I'm fond of the name. My mother told me Ishmael was biblical in origin. She read me some of the Bible, Jonah, Abraham and Moses, but I had little need for it. What my mother taught me about Ishmael from the Bible, the orphaned son of Abraham, I have slowly forgotten. There is little purpose in retelling my past beyond or since this adventure to the sea. Apart from my journey on the whaling ship Pequod, nothing of great importance has happened to me. Like most men in my position and class, I had sailed before, on a merchant ship commissioned by the East India Company. The space was cramped and my bunkmate had scurvy, the food provisions were stinky and half-rotten, and what did I earn for the inconvenience? Room, board, and a distaster for commercial seafarer. I made a solemn vow never to return to a merchant ship. It was expensive to my health and dreary to my spirit. I went looking for a new adventure, a grand voyager, to sail as a sailor to a place you can't find on a map. Chapter 2 My Nerves in New Bedford I stuffed a shirt or two in my old duffel bag, tucked it under my arm, and made way for Nantucket. But as the fates would have it, the Nantucket ferry had already departed for the weekend, and I was stuck in New Bedford until Monday. I now had two days and nights to spend here while awaiting the ferry. Darkness was fast approaching, and with the knowledge that I was alone without shelter, my bag grew heavy in my hands. New Bedford was an unpredictable place. I would have preferred to sleep on the soft sand of the East Beach, but I was unaccustomed to the locals and anxious about the reputation of the rowdy sailors. I determined that an affordable inn would be a safer option. I paced the streets and followed the path away from the ocean. The farther I walked, the cheaper the price on the hotel signs became and so while constantly looking over my shoulder, I kept walking, maintaining a brisk and nervous pace. I was afraid of the surroundings and the newness of the customs and culture. I finally came to a dim sort of light not far from the docks of a reservoir, inland a few miles from the New Bedford Cove. Looking up, I saw a dilapidated wooden house with a swinging sign that creaked in the gentle breeze with words, faded by the elements, that read, The Spouter Inn. It looked like the very spot for cheap lodgings and a free cup of cider. It was the exact place a man with my thinning wallet needed. Relieved to have found it, I opened the door and took a step inside. Entering that gable-shaped spouter inn, you found yourself in a wide, low, straggling entry with old-fashioned wooden panelling, reminding one of some condemned old craft. Chapter 3. Meeting the Cannibal I entered this spouter inn and found a cluster of sailors laughing and hollering at the table in the entrance playing cards. None of them offered me a glance up from their game. I clutched my carpet bag tighter, self-conscious of my surroundings. I found the landlord and asked him about a room for the night. The landlord was pouring himself a drink and without turning around responded, Not a bed unoccupied. Then, after a pause, he continued, But if you don't object to sharing a bed with a harpooner. I told him that I never liked to sleep two in a bed, but seeing that my options were limited, I would put up with sharing half of any decent man's blanket. Who is this harpooner? Is he here? I asked. I grew a little nervous about the arrangement, but it was too late to go on searching for a new inn. Well, said the landlord, taking a deep breath, this harpooner just arrived from the South Seas and he's been out peddling heads all day. He sold all of them but one. I was ushered upstairs into a small cold room and lay perfectly still. Time passed and the dreaded harpooner finally stumbled in. Without noticing me, he started undressing. In the dim light, I saw that his large chest, arms and back were all marked with strange tattoos. Turning off the light and quick as a cat, he sprang into bed with me. Unaware of my presence in his bed, his elbow caught me in the rib. I let out a groan. The savage sprang out of his side of the bed, and I out of mine. Landlord! I cried loudly enough to wake every sailor in the inn, 
For God's sake, landlord, angels, anyone, save me. And this tattooing had been the work of a departed prophet and seer of his island, who by those hieroglyphic marks had written out on his body a complete theory of the heavens and the earth, and a mystical treatise on the art of attaining truth, so that Queequeg, in his own proper person, was a riddle to unfold. Chapter 4 Better to sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunk Christian. Speak or I kill you. The cannibal growled with tomahawk in hand. At that moment, the landlord came into the room with a light in his hand, and I leapt from the bed and ran to his side. Don't be afraid, the landlord said, grinning. Queequeg here wouldn't harm a hair of your head. Stop your grinning, I shouted. And why didn't you tell me that infernal harpooner is a cannibal? I thought you knew it. I did tell you he was peddling heads around town. I understood that metaphorically, I responded. Get back in bed he said wearily and somewhat impatiently. Queequeg, look here, this man is going to sleep in your bed, you understand? Queequeg grunted, puffing away at his pipe and sitting up in bed. He fixed his eyes on me and offered me an encouraging nod. You getting in? The cannibal asked me, motioning with his tomahawk. His tone was not only civil, but gruff. I stood looking at him for a moment. For all of his tattoos, he was on the whole, a clean, decent-looking cannibal. And as ironic as it sounds, at that moment he seemed perfectly harmless. My shoulders relaxed, and with a returned nod, I got into bed with him. Good night, landlord, I said. You may go. I was asleep in no time, on the bed of a cannibal, and truly, I never slept better in my life. Chapter 5. The Grace of a Cannibal I woke up the next morning as the sun rose and found Queequeg's gigantic arm flung over me. It took quite an effort to get myself out from under his hold and even more effort to rouse him. Queequeg, wake up! I finally yelled, giving the cannibal a little push. He sat up in bed, looking at me and rubbing his eyes. He seemed confused, as though he had never seen me before. A look of recognition finally passed his face. He yawned, stretched his great back, and jumped out of bed. We got dressed quickly and descended into the dining room for breakfast. Seated at the table were the same reluctant sailors from the night before. I had hoped that they would have warmed up to me by now. However, to my disappointment, they all stared at their plates, maintaining a profound silence while keeping a hurried pace from fork to food to mouth. Queequeg took his spot at the head of the table, appearing as cool as an icicle. The expressionless faces of the sailors had no effect on Queequeg's modest confidence. He did not seem the least bit disturbed about bringing his harpoon to the table and was anything but intimidated by the coolness of the company. I wondered how long he must have carried his harpoon about, almost as an accessory, and what grisly untold tales the harpoon had. The men at breakfast said nothing about his harpoon, not even when he reached over the table with it to the imminent jeopardy of many heads and speared his beefsteak, pulling it to his plate. He carried this out with such grace that no one said a thing at all. I found myself admiring this quiet and peculiar pagan, this graceful cannibal. After breakfast, Queequeg relaxed himself by lighting his tomahawk pipe, smoking quietly with his hat firm on his head. I, on the other hand, took a step out of the inn for a stroll down New Bedford Lane. Some alone time and decompression were in order. Chapter 6. The Church on the Corner Familiarising myself with New Bedford, I quickly understood why no one else at the inn seemed astonished at the sight of Queequeg. In broad daylight, the town teemed with a mix of odd-looking individuals. A cannibal seemed to fit right in. I proceeded to explore more of this strange and lovely town. I found myself drawn and then pulled into a whaler's chapel on the corner of the bay, it was so near the edge of the coastline that any tide would have turned it into an ark. It was a silent tradition for Christian whalemen and those who wished to go to sea to pay a visit to a chapel before setting off. In the chapel was a modest congregation, sitting in silence. I walked in carefully, with a bit of hesitation, curious and weighed down with fear and trepidation. In a strange way I felt as though I was intruding in the people's peace. Their faces were dull and heavy with grief. The oppressive silence was occasionally broken by shrieks of the storm. 
Quietly, I seat myself near the door, taking the final pew in the corner. Lightning struck, and in the flash of the light through the glass-stained windows, I saw several marble tablets. Written on them were inscriptions to honour the dead. One read, Sacred to the memory of John Mapple, who was lost overboard at the age of 18, near the Isle of Desolation, off Patagonia, November 1st, 1836. This tablet is erected to his memory by his mother. Most of the congregation looked as though they had personally lost someone to the sea. Their eyes were intently gazing at the marble tablets, then bowed again to find spiritual recovery from their loss. Some watched the empty pulpit with barren souls, hoping that the father would come soon and say something of solace. Their collective grief reminding me that I too could be one of those names on the tablets. I too could soon be a victim of the sea. I was bothered and relieved by the thought. Chapter 7. Father Mapple. It wasn't long before a gentleman of some age and esteem, vigorous and inspiring, entered the chapel, softly, yet with remarkable impact upon his parishioners. They turned their attention to his arrival. He walked with a slight limp, a consequence of the years he spent as a whaler, with a harpoon in his hand. He was now a man of the cloth, but mostly of the people. He was born and bred, just like those in his congregation, without formal pastoral education or training. Father Mapple was schooled as a whaler and a fine one at that. A legend in New Bedford for his courage, facing a whale in precision with a harpoon. However, his family brought him life's greatest triumphs and tragedies. A father of five boys, sobered by the loss of one of them to sea. Death and tragedy, light and love, brought Father Mapple to the questions of purpose and finally to the pulpit where he was revered by all in New Bedford. He meandered deliberately down the centre of the pews, slowly, arm in arm with his wife as she led him to the front, stopping at each row to gently touch a shoulder or greet a newcomer. Finally, he reached the pulpit, shaped as a rescue boat, and climbed into position. To begin, he led the congregation in a hymn. In dark distress I called my God when I could scarce believe him mine. He bowed his ear to my complaints and flew to my relief, humble yet bright as lightning shone, the face of my deliverer God. Nearly all joined in singing this hymn, which drowned the howling of the storm. Then a brief pause ensued and Father Mapple slowly turned over the leaves of his Bible to the proper page and said, Shipmates consider the lesson of Jonah who was swallowed by that great whale. God asked Jonah to save his enemy and he refused, for he did not want them to be saved. The Lord sounded these unwelcome truths in the ears of Jonah, and he fled from his mission and sought to escape his duty, and the mercy of a God that loves and saves even our enemies. Father Mapple offered a prayer so deeply devout that he seemed kneeling and praying at the bottom of the sea. Chapter 8 the island of Rokovoko. Returning to the Spouter Inn from the chapel, I found Queequeg there alone. He was sitting on a bench by the fire and was holding close the little idol of his. With much interest, I sat watching him. Savage though he was, his countenance had something in it that was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Before we slept, Queequeg told me about himself and I got a glimpse into his past. Queequeg was a native of Rokovoko, an island far away to the south and slightly west. His father was the king, his uncle a high priest. There was excellent royalty blood in his veins, though cannibalistic and idolatrous. Surrounded by such thick paganism, Queequeg desired to see more of what Christendom had to offer. Like me, he had adventurous blood running through his veins, but unlike me, he had sought out his ambition taking destiny into his hands. We were not so different, Queequeg and I. It is correct that I do not boast of a regal inheritance like my friend. That would be laughable. And I lack the brute strength that he adorns, and on the scales of being adventurous, I am a coward in comparison. But we were similar enough, both human with emotion and soul and curiosity. Queequeg told me that back then he wanted to learn more about Christians. As an idolater at heart, he didn't want to be a converted Christian, just to understand them and observe their ways. 
experiencing the deeds of the whalemen and the sailors, the Christians and the heathens, the devout and the ungodly and the wicked deeds in all meridians, Queequeg resolved to die a pagan. When I asked Queequeg if he would return to his people for his coronation, as he suspected his father was long dead, Queequeg became uneasy. He told me what he feared, that he had stayed with the Christians too long and was out of touch with his people's ways, and that he was no longer fit to lead them. While we spoke, I told him of my desire to become an adventurous whaleman, sailing out of Nantucket to create stories of my own. To my surprise, Queequeg at once resolved to be my companion on my travels, and with that decision, me and the cannibal were bound. Here was a man some 20,000 miles from home, thrown among people as strange to him as though he were on the planet Jupiter, and yet he seemed entirely at his ease, preserving the utmost serenity, content with his own companionship. Chapter 9 Little Moss The next morning, Queequeg and I gathered our things to leave the inn. There were amused stares from the sailors in the inn, as well as the landlord himself. No one must have expected our friendship to bloom so fast. I certainly hadn't. Why, they're joined at the hip now, the landlord joked. Almost like a married couple, another man put in, smoking his pipe. He laughed at his own words, and his laughter sent smoke the wrong way. Soon he was coughing out of his eyes. Queequeg and I gathered our things and went down to the moss, the little Nantucket packet schooner docked at the wharf. As we stood on the docks, Queequeg looked around, harpoon in hand. He was a formidable figure, a Greek statue. In no time, we paid our passage and stood on board the schooner. Looking to the side, I saw New Bedford, rising in terraces of streets, their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clear, cold air. Something was rising in my chest. I was leaving New Bedford behind. Next, Nantucket. And after that, I would become a whaleman, or a sailor, on a whaler's ship. Queequeg smoked quietly for the most part of the journey. He only lost his composure once when he had to throw a troublesome fellow up in the air. The chap, amused by our friendship, had stood behind Queequeg, making mocking gestures. Nothing much happened after his little toss. The other passengers quickly learned to leave us be. If they thought my friendship with a cannibal was strange, they knew better than to show it now. We arrived in Nantucket towards evening. A beautiful, desolate place. A mere mound and elbow of sand. All beach, without a background. I was here at last. What wonder that these Nantucketers born on a beach should take to the sea for a livelihood. Chapter 10. Yojo. Before leaving the Spouter Inn, the landlord mentioned his cousin's hotel in Nantucket. We went straight to the place now, having had it described to us. The hotel was run by cousin Hosea and a woman who seemed to be his wife. She was a short, round woman with flat, impatient eyes. We let her know we needed a room and a meal and she set to it, feeding us with the most delicious clam and cod we ever tasted. The landlord had been right about this place. The cod was not just palatable, but downright mouth-watering. My mother's cooking tasted like sawdust, God rest her soul. She substituted mussels for clams and cod for garbage fish, bowfin and porgy. Filled with good food, Queequeg and I took to smoking and discussing our plans. I know that to do anything good and to do it correctly, one must plan, properly weighing the pros and cons of a situation and considering the logic of the matter, backed by facts and a touch of intuition. To my dismay, Queequeg declared that he had turned to Yojo for answers. Yojo was his little black idol that he carried about, worshipped and made little sacrifices to. He sometimes spent time communing with the god. Now, he said, Yojo told him that I must be the one to select our ship and voyage. I wanted to tell Queequeg that his plan was ridiculous and Yojo nothing more than a cleverly carved piece of driftwood. I longed to shake his great stubborn head side to side until he saw reason, but I could not outrightly trash his religion and his beliefs, and so, the next day, I was off to find a ship for us, hoping Queequeg had not made a terrible mistake and that my intuition would prove itself providential. This development caused me great anxiety. I had been relying on Queequeg's vast experience to find us a ship fit for voyage, but now the burden was on my green shoulders all thanks to Yojo. 
Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians, idol worshippers, and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Chapter 11 Our Ship, the Pequod The next morning early, I left Queequeg and Yojo shut in our bedroom and set off on my quest to find a suitable ship and barter for a fair wage. Queequeg was fasting when I left, in a state of some sort of meditation or prayer. He had offered me a little grunt in form of greeting when I told him I was off. I went down to the docks and to the ships, feeling unsure about myself. Their language was not mine, and I was certain that my inexperience would immediately reveal itself to these sea-worn whalers. I learned that there were three ships up for three-year voyages, the Devil Dam, the Titbit and the Pequod. I peered and pried about the Devil Dam, then hopped over to the Titbit, and finally going on board the Pequod, looked around her for a moment, and then decided that this was the very ship for us. The Pequod was a rather small ship, old-fashioned and outdated, unlike the Titbit, well-worn with experience, but also maintained and competent. On her you could see the seasons she had sailed, the weather strains from the storms, the typhoons and calms of all four oceans. It struck me as a noble craft, but sitting isolated as it was with those marks of time around it, I also sensed a melancholy, a little proud ship with bittersweet stories to tell. Having decided on our ship, I looked about the quarterdeck for the person in charge. There was a strange tent pitched a little behind the main mast. It was a temporary thing erected on stilts, artificially elevating the status of someone's insecurity. If there was anyone with any authority around, they would be in the tent. With that thought in mind, I moved towards it. It did not take me long to find such a man. He was seated on an old-fashioned timbered chair, wriggling all over with curious twitches. He was a short brown man, barrel-chested with a very thick neck and dressed in the Quaker style. He looked up when he saw me, but he did not make a move. His thick brows seemed a canopy for his deeply suspicious eyes. I dared not look for too long at those eyes. Is this the captain of the Pequod? I asked at last. What do you want of the captain? he demanded. I was thinking of shipping. The man gave me an appraising look and asked me if I'd ever been a whaler, to which I answered no. He threw a few more sharp questions, asking about my experience at sea. My answers confirmed that I knew little about whaling, and my time as a merchant sailor meant little to him. The man did not look pleased. He mumbled something about young fools rushing off to face the devil. But what takes you a whaling? he asked, looking me over. I answered truthfully, I want to see the world and what whaling is. The man immediately gave a loud, booming laugh. His chest shook with it, and for a minute it appeared he would fall off his chair. I stood there, feeling a little foolish. When he stopped laughing, he turned to me. Want to see the world? Have you by any chance seen Captain Ahab? Who is Captain Ahab, sir? The captain of this very ship you wish to board. Warming up to me, he told me he was Captain Peleg, and that his station was seeing that the Pequod was fit for voyage and supplied with all her needs, including the crew. If you truly wish to know what whaling is as you say you do, you can find out before you bind yourself to this ship. Fill your eyes with the sight of Captain Ahab and you will see that he has only one leg. What do you mean, sir? Was the other one taken by a whale? It was devoured, chewed up, crunched by the most monstrous sperm whale that ever chipped a boat. I flinched. On reflex I looked around, expecting to see the one-legged captain lurking about. Seeing as Peleg was still sizing me up, I composed myself quickly and maintained my stance. I was determined to go whaling. With a shrug, he said if I was so eager to throw myself in danger, he wouldn't stand in my way. Come along with me and sign the papers. Captain Peleg, I said. I have a friend with me who wants to ship too. Shall I bring him down tomorrow? Has he any experience whaling? I thought about Queequeg. He's killed more sperm whales than the orca, Captain Peleg. Well, bring him along then. Following Peleg, I signed the papers, settling on a meagre wage for me. I didn't feel that I had any room to bargain or experience to negotiate with. 
I began to wonder about Captain Ahab. What sort of man was he? Was it wise to commit my life to a voyage without knowing the captain of the vessel? Certainly not. I asked Peleg to see this captain. That won't be possible, my boy. You see, Captain Ahab keeps himself inside the house. He's a curious man, but nothing to fear. You might hear stories about him from the other ships, but know that he's a good man. To be certain, he's not the jolly kind, and he's prone to fits of madness. But he's honourable and fearless. I wasn't sold. I walked away, haunted by this mysterious Captain Ahab. You never saw such a craft as this old Pequod. She was a ship of the old school. Chapter 12 The Worth of Queequeg The next day, Queequeg and I left the inn, after having had our fill of delicious cod and clam. Queequeg had just finished his strange fast, and so he was in high spirits. He carried our few possessions strapped across his back, while holding his harpoon with one big steady hand. Yojo was tucked away, somewhere along with our other possessions. As we neared the Pequod, Captain Peleg in his gruff voice loudly hailed us from his wigwam and then followed it up by saying he had not suspected my friend was a cannibal. No cannibals allowed on this ship, not without papers, he called out. What do you mean by that, Captain Peleg? I demanded, making a move to address him. I jumped on the deck, leaving Queequeg to stand on the wharf. He must show his papers, he replied. Simple as that. He must prove that he has left the ways of evil and darkness. Peleg looked at Queequeg as though he were a filthy sinner. Tell me, cannibal, do you visit any Christian church? Before Queequeg could speak, I pushed myself forward, filling my voice with righteous indignation. Does Queequeg go to church? Why, he's a member of the First Congregational Church. I spent a great deal of time convincing him of Queequeg's Christian righteousness. He wanted to know if Queequeg was a regular at the church, how often he prayed, if he partook in any strange rituals. Undeterred, I maintained that Queequeg was as Christian as they come. While I argued with Peleg, Queequeg said nothing. He had other plans of his own. In his amazing barbaric manner, Queequeg jumped upon the plank of the ship. From there, he flung himself into the bows of one of the whaleboats hanging to the side, and then bracing his left knee and pointing his harpoon, gave a savage cry. Look! Look! I shrieked. If there was a whale, why that whale was as good as dead. The man is full of brawn. Peleg was impressed by the show and declared, This man, Christian or not, will be shipped and we will pay him double, no triple your wage. Queequeg and I shared a grin. We were set to sail on the Pequod. In his uncorrupted state, Queequeg neither knows nor cares what money is all about. Chapter 13 The Crazy Prophet in that very hour that we walked the deck to board the Pequod and begin preparations for departure, a tall, dirty stranger appeared in front of us. His wide eyes kept darting side to side. He rushed towards me and grabbed me by the shoulders. Have you shipped in that vessel? Have you been aboard the Pequod? Startled, I pushed him off. I looked around, wondering what he was about. We just signed the papers. We're to be on the ship, I said eyeing him suspiciously. Anything down there about your souls? What? Beware, young fool, beware of the damned ship, the snatcher of souls, he cried. He lifted his hands up and threw his head back, allowing his eyes to roll up in their sockets. Sensing that the man was mad, I quickly urged Queequeg to move ahead with me. Queequeg was unimpressed, but followed. The man shrieked when he saw that we were leaving him behind. He ran and placed himself in front of us. Have you heard nothing of Captain Ahab? Do you not know of the curse, the prophecy? Were you not told the tale, when he lay like dead for three days and nights? Have you at least heard nothing about his lost leg? When I didn't respond or flinch, the man cried out again. Oh, doom! Damnation! I suppose you've signed your names to the ship. It is now carved in stone and will soon be on your graves. What's done is done. It's all signed and sealed. What will be will be. Farewell. Farewell. And with that, the crazy man was out of sight. Shaking myself and recovering from the strange encounter, I decided he was nothing but a crazy humbug and tried to think nothing more of it. My last chance to remove myself from the journey had come and gone. 
As I watched the docks recede in the distance, it struck me that my fate was bound to this ship and to its silent, moody captain who kept himself locked in his cabin. Chapter 14. Where's the captain? A whole week had passed since we set sail. I asked Queequeg what he thought of the absentee captain while we worked at the ropes together. Capain's sick. When well he will come out. His face was a flat mask. If he had other things to say concerning the captain, he kept them to himself. Perhaps it was that he didn't have enough words to explain himself, or the captain's absence did not disturb him nearly as it did me. While the captain stayed hidden, there were men on ground who saw to the command of the ship. The chief mate of the Pequod was Starbuck, a native of Nantucket and a Quaker by descent. He was a tall, sober man of few words and deeply reserved. His experience at sea had inclined him to superstition. It was not the superstition of the ignorant. His superstition seemed to be born of intelligence. He was a careful, prudent man, the finest first mate, fit for the ship. He cautioned us all to give whales respect and be reasonably afraid of them. Foolish courage, he said, often made the sea a bottomless grave for men. Stubb was the second mate. He was a native of Cape Cod and a happy-go-lucky sort of man. He did not have the deep sobriety of Starbuck, and he made the ship lighter with his good humour. His short, black little pipe was a fixture to his face, and you would have expected him to roll out of his bunk with it attached. The third mate was Flask, a native of Tisbury, in Martha's Vineyard. He was a short, stout, ruddy young fellow who had very a dismissive attitude towards the dangers of a whale. He somehow believed his destiny was to bring about the destruction of all whales. He threw himself at whaling with no fear or caution. Flask held no reverence for the magnificence of a whale. To him, a whale was nothing but a water rat, which he must personally destroy. Starbuck, Stubb and Flask each had their harpooner, the man who provides them with a fresh lance when the former one has been badly twisted or elbowed in the assault of the whale. Starbuck chose Queequeg for his squire. Queequeg accepted the position with pride. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Chapter 15. Ahab rallies the troops. Captain Ahab's cabin was a shrouded, sacred thing, home to a strange existence. It was Christmas when the ship left the harbour. We had encountered the biting polar weather, but as we sailed on, the bitter winter was gradually left behind. The change from winter to fairer weather was slow. On some mornings, all was cold, grey and gloomy. It was on one of those gloomy mornings that I finally saw him. I was on the deck for the mid-morning watch. I lifted my eyes to the stern and there he was, standing openly on his quarter-deck. A shock went through me. I straightened up and improved my posture and attention to work detail. Captain Ahab looked like a ghost, a figure from a phantom story come alive, and he scared me straight. As I watched him mid-pause, I saw that he had no signs of physical illness. The most outstanding aspect of the captain's persona was the barbaric wooden leg which he stood on, crafted from the bone of a sperm whale's jaw. This was the leg he had lost to the whale. As he stood looking straight beyond the ship, I could feel his willfulness, his stubbornness and deliberate fearlessness. Here was a man who was not going to let anything or anyone stop him. His presence put everyone on alert, silenced the crew, a tension of silence so thick that it penetrated the gloomy atmosphere. Quietly, he withdrew back to his cabin, leaving us all to wonder about him. He shortly returned holding a coin. Now he held it up for all to see. See this Spanish ounce of gold? It is a $16 piece, men. Look very closely at it. He turned to Starbuck. Mate, get me the hammer. Ahab took a hammer from Starbuck and moved towards the mainmast. Lifting it in one hand and the gold in another, he gave a loud cry. If any one of you raises me the white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw, if any one man among you gives me that damn white whale, he shall have this gold. With that, he nailed the gold to the mast. 
Shouts broke out among the seamen. They were excited to see the gold, their captain, and the show. Chapter 16 More Than a Whale It was later that night, when my chanting crewmates had all dispersed and taken to their hammocks or assignments, that I had time to think. I laid atop my hammock, holding my thumbs together. Not feeling the emotion of the crew, not really feeling any emotion, my mind becoming consumed by Ahab's bloodlust, by his need for vengeance against Moby Dick. His feud wanted to become mine, but I resisted the pull into his frenzy. Coming on board the Pequod, I had desired to go whaling, adventuring, not madly hunting. Yet, in today's frenzy, I joined the crew, welded my oath with theirs, and swore to avenge Ahab. As I cried out, infected by the emotion of a mad crowd, I had given my word to Ahab to fight to the ends of the earth, that which no man had conquered before. But I don't think I really meant it. I felt my soul urging to become consumed by Ahab's bloodlust, by his need for vengeance against Moby Dick. His feud was trying to become mine. While spirits were still high, I learned the history of the monster Moby Dick, and now it weighed heavily upon me. Or was it a monster of Ahab's creation? The whale had haunted those uncivilised seas, mostly explored by the sperm whale fishermen. Only a few of these fishermen had seen him, and even fewer dared to give him a battle. Most of these fishermen were quickly given to superstition, and some of them believed that the whale was unnatural, that he was ubiquitous and could be encountered at different parts of the sea at the same time. That was the same whale that Captain Ahab had encountered, the same whale that he now set to pit us against. In their first encounter, Captain Ahab had been reckless, dashing blindly at the whale with his knife after all of his harpoons were thrown. Somehow he had expected the six-inch blade to sink into the depths of the whale and put an end to it. Instead, Moby Dick countered, swept at his jaw and tore away his leg. Now, in the darkness of my hammock, I began to understand. I began to see the old man Ahab for what he was. Pieces of the picture slowly formed in my mind, until I could not ignore the truth. Ahab harboured a wild vindictiveness against the whale. He identified the whale with himself, his story, his past, whatever troubled him, held his brain hostage and would not let go. That was the whale. To Ahab, Moby Dick was a personal nemesis. It was everything that was wrong and cruel in the world. It was a god torturing fellow travellers with the inevitability of death, judgment and a life void of meaning. It was the devil, a dragon, hell-bent on crucifying the innocent and ravaging the vulnerable. If he did not put it down, he would not rest. Until Moby Dick's blood flowed thick and dark on the waters, Captain Ahab would consider his life's purpose unmet. Vanquishing the whale had become his singular reason for existence. All things that tormented him had taken the form of the whale. All his afflictions were harrowed up in the flesh of Moby Dick. To mortally wound the beast would release his demons. Our unusual crew seemed especially picked and packed by some guiding force. It was as though the fates themselves had selected us, all to be tools to help Captain Ahab in his manic vengeance. I was a pawn in this game, the weakest one, situated behind the others and completely dispensable. I had to be vigilant. The white whale swam before him as the maniac incarnation of all those malicious feelings which some deep men feel eating in them, till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. Chapter 17 The Ghost of God The ship bubbled with activity. Ahab was often seen with Starbuck, studying charts, marking circles and plans. Finding a solitary whale in the unending oceans of the planet might seem absurdly hopeless. Going after it with fiery passion might seem a fool's errand to the common man. But Ahab knew the sets of all the tides and currents. By calculating the drifting of the sperm whale's food and recalling the particular seasons for hunting him in certain latitudes, he could to a great degree ascertain the best day to be on a part of the ocean in search of his prey. Queequeg was full of stories of Moby Dick. Among his people they had a name for the whale, Aqua Aitu, the ghost of God. They didn't fear him, but revered him with caution and reverence. Though Queequeg again seemed indifferent, the whale's whiteness was to me the most frightening. 
There is an unsettling something under that peaceful hue, a half-concealed layer which strikes more panic to the soul than redness of blood. These disturbing thoughts swarm around in my mind, day in and day out. In my dreams one night, I encountered that mad stranger again, the prophet. He was at sea, somehow in the way of dreams. His voice echoed from all over the waves. Woe, he cried. Damnation! All is lost! I begged him to take me back to land. I told him Yojo made a mistake. We were not meant to be on the Pequod. We were not meant to be here at all. I woke up in a panic, panting and disoriented. I had fallen asleep on my duty. The soft rain was pelting on my face. Looking to my side, I saw Queequeg watching me curiously. God keep thee. Push not off from that isle. Thou canst never return. Chapter 18. Be still. Weeks passed. Under easy sail, the Pequod gently swept across four cruising grounds. Ahab commanded the sails, walking the deck with his quick strides. His good leg made lively echoes along the deck, and every stroke of his dead limb sounded like a coffin tap. The weather had gone dark and bleak, and it manifested itself in Ahab. He once again became gloomy, reserved, and rarely addressed anyone. For hours on end, Ahab would stand gazing windward, not minding the occasional squall of sleet or snow that would all but seal his eyelashes together. Few words were shared among the crew, and the silent Pequod tore on through the waves. It was in this gloomy weather that I encountered Queequeg below deck. He was quietly weaving a patch to repair the mast that had been damaged in a storm. I sat beside him without a word and joined him in weaving. Finally, I released my anxieties and fears to him, thoughts I had held on to but could no longer keep to myself, thoughts that were festering and spiralling out of my control. He sat and listened, but gave very little response. I asked him what he thought of Captain Ahab, the whale and the pursuit, relaying my worried opinions with reckless release. Queequeg sat stoic, using his finger to draw shapes in the dusty deck. Finally, he got up and gave a great grin and friendly clasp on my shoulder. Then bringing his face close to mine, with his great arms around my shoulders, he whispered, Be still. Then he left. Chapter 19 Searching As we sailed on, Captain Ahab's search grew even more earnest. It was as though every second spent without Moby Dick in his sight inflicted pain. Again, uncertainties crept into my mind concerning our quest, but I shook them off and tried to remember the words of Queequeg to be still. I was a character in a glorious tale. We sailed slowly over the sleepy midday sea, eyes of all men proving to be more vigilant than ever. In the distance was a strange ship. As we covered ground and neared the ship, the stranger showed French colours from his peak. A boat was sent out with Captain Ahab in it to meet the stranger's slowly approaching boat. Captain Ahab first asked if anyone on the French ship spoke English. A man came forward to indicate that he was an English speaker. Ahab had only one question for him. It was the same as the ones he had asked all other ships before us. My good man, have you seen the white whale? What whale? The white whale, a sperm whale. The one they call Moby Dick, have you seen him? Never heard of such a whale. No white whale, no. Ahab gave a small nod and signalled for his boat to be pulled back towards the Pequod, having no other use for the French ship. His eyes were on the sea again, looking out for the whale, the damn white whale. All the subtle demons of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab, were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. Chapter 20 One-Armed Captain in the course of our sailing, we encountered another ship. It was an even smaller ship than the Pequod. Ahab called out to the ship, Ahoy! Have you men seen the white whale? The ship came closer, cruising slowly along the waves until I could properly see the face of the man who spoke. Have I seen the whale? The man gave a little shake of his head. He laughed, but there was no amusement in his tone. Do you see this? Slowly, he withdrew his hand from the folds of garments that hid it. I blinked. Where his hand should have been, there was sperm whalebone. 
it was very much the same as Ahab's leg. On seeing the stranger's hand, Ahab's demeanour turned. Man my boat, he commanded. In less than a minute, Ahab and his crew dropped to the water, down to the waiting boat. The boat glided along until it was side to side with the stranger ship. Carefully, he was helped into the ship. The one-armed captain thrust his ivory arm forward in welcome. Ahab put out his ivory leg in a sort of greeting. It appears we suffer the same affliction, friend, a hand that can never shake and a leg that can never run. He took your arm off, didn't he? asked Ahab. The captain nodded. And your leg, taken away by the same brute, Ahab said. Ahab leaned towards the stranger. Where did you see the whale? How long ago was it? Tell me what you know. You plan to hunt the creature? You can't be serious? The man looked at Ahab's crew, questioning all of their sanity. The strange captain pointed his oddly shaped ivory arm towards the east. There I saw him, towards the horizon, last season. In a moment, Ahab was back in the boat. He stayed upright until the boat drifted to the Pequod. The one-armed captain called out to him, but Ahab would not look back. Now it turned out that the swooping force and sudden manner in which Ahab left the stranger ship caused him some injury. He had jumped with such energy that his ivory leg had buckled and was damaged. Ahab sent for the carpenter. Chapter 21 The Carpenter The Pequod's carpenter was a very peculiar fellow indeed. To me, most men appear woefully unremarkable. At our core, we are easily replaceable. If you have seen one man, you've seen them all. That was not the case with the Pequod's carpenter. The man had an odd, smooth face. His entire being appeared to have been robbed of any real concern. He was the absolute contradiction of Ahab. Yet, here he was, called to mend him. From the years as a carpenter, he had become one with his tools and his craft. He was the wood, the hammer, and the little smooth nails. He worked purely on instinct. He did not look like he thought at all. He wasn't a machine, but the oil that flowed through the machinery. A man free of desire or judgment. God makes us all, the unique and the typical alike, but it is always a wonder to see the profoundly content. The man set to work on Ahab's leg, working skillfully, confidently. Queequeg and I watched him from a little distance. Special one, isn't he? I asked Queequeg. He nodded. The man has been touched, certainly, Queequeg said. Touched? Queequeg began to look for the words to explain himself, but by the shake of his head, I knew he was lost for words. Godlike finally escaped his mouth. Queequeg would not elaborate further, and I didn't inquire. So we stood there and watched the carpenter. Chapter 22 The Coffin As we neared the coast of Japan, Queequeg's health took a turn for the worse. My friend was seized by a cruel fever, and there was no letting up. He was laid down in the hammock, close to the very door of death. Despite our best efforts, there were no improvements. Queequeg continued to waste away. He asked me to read to him, but the only book in the boat was the Sailor's Bible, which intimidated me with its weight, and I hesitated to pull it off the dusty shelf. I recited stories and poems to him, what I could recall from childhood. I looked at Queequeg to censor his response. He preferred the stories to the Bibli, but quietly lay in his swaying hammock, and the rolling sea seemed to gently rock him to his final rest. The ocean's invisible flood tide lifted him higher and higher towards his destined heaven. Queequeg asked for a curious favour, a last request. He said he shuddered at the thought of being buried in his hammock and wanted a coffin built in the shape of a canoe, a final resting place, as was custom among his people. With Queequeg's request made, the carpenter set to work to make him this coffin. When the last nail was driven, the coffin was brought to Queequeg. He called for his harpoon, biscuits and a flask of fresh water and asked that he be lifted into his final bed. But now that he had prepared for death and his coffin proved to be a good fit, Queequeg miraculously rallied. Rising up from the coffin, Queequeg said he suddenly remembered a task ashore he had not finished. I've got to finish repairing the mast, he said and announced that he had changed his mind about dying. Do you think it's in your power to decide when to die or live? 
the sailors asked him. Queequeg answered that yes, he believed that if a man made up his mind to live, mere sickness could not kill him. Nothing but a whale or violent destroyer could take him. He now used his coffin for a sea chest. In it, he deposited all of his belongings. He spent many hours carving and painting the lid of the coffin with the same markings that covered his skin. Though he never interpreted the meaning of these mysterious markings, it was evident that his heart beat with them. Chapter 23 Rachel A few days after Queequeg's recovery, a large ship, the Rachel, was seen heading down upon the Pequod. Ahab's voice boomed from somewhere behind me. Have you seen the white whale? The stranger captain shouted back. Yes, only yesterday. And have you seen a whaleboat drifting by? I looked back at Ahab and saw that his eyes were shining, his fists were clenched by his sides, he could barely contain his joy. The whale had been seen at last, and just yesterday too. No, I haven't seen a whaleboat, Ahab called back at the stranger captain, dismissing any request for information other than his own. The stranger captain got on a boat and approached the Pequod's side. With a little help, he was pulled onto the Pequod. A look of recognition flashed through Ahab's face. This captain was someone he knew. Where did you find the whale? He hasn't been killed, has he? He asked as their hands met in a firm handshake. No, said Rachel's captain, although my men tried. Late in the afternoon yesterday, I led my crew in hunting some whales. We saw the head of Moby Dick rising from the waters and we sent a boat after it. We can't find the boat now. The captain's voice cracked. The boat and the men. We've not caught a single glance of them. The man was desperate. Ahab, I beg you to unite my ship with yours in search of the missing boat. My own son is one of them missing at sea, and he's not a day over twelve. Do this for me, Ahab, as you would have me do if my story was yours. You have a son just like me. Help me find the boy. I will not do it. Even now I lose precious time. Moby Dick must be found. I hope you find your boy. I cannot help you. Goodbye. Ahab averted his gaze and stormed into his cabin with quick strides. Rachel's captain was left watching Ahab's retreating figure. He was the very picture of sorrow as he stood there, transfixed and processing his rejection. What a rejection it was on a quest so earnest. He looked around the crew members. I averted my gaze when our eyes met. I could not meet his eyes. It was almost as if I was a part of his rejection by simply being on Captain Ahab's ship. The man might never see his son again. It was difficult to look at such vulnerable grief. I took a step down below deck. When I returned, Rachel's captain was gone. Chapter 24. There She Blows Our search was coming to an end. The imminent feeling of resolution was building. My old misgivings swam up to the surface. Moby Dick had never been beaten. Suppose we could not kill it. What then? It was in this troubled state that Queequeg met me. He held his harpoon in his right hand like a permanent attachment. His chest was bare, and his tattoos seemed to glow in that otherworldly way. No matter how many times I saw Queequeg, I marvelled. He sat by me. We shared a small silence. We close, my friend, he said finally. Moby close. There she blows, a voice cried. The decks vibrated with the sound of running feet. Crew members were pouring out. There she blows, a hump like a snow hill. It's Moby Dick. Ahab rushed to perch himself above, some feet higher than the other lookouts. He's heading away from us, sir, cried Starbuck. He's heading away. He hasn't seen us yet. And then I saw the whale. Gently, like a dancer in a tail, Moby Dick rose from the water. His enormous white form curved into a high arch. There he was, the playful god. He waved his bannered flukes in the air in warning, sounded and went out of sight. With a cry, Ahab commanded all boats to be dropped. All three boats set chase for the whale, each man moving with speed. Not a moment to lose. Ahab himself had transformed altogether. It occurred to me that while the rest of us simply hunted a whale, Ahab hunted the devil himself. All the aberrations of Ahab's world had taken the form of that white whale, Moby Dick. Under the canopy of the starry night sky, the three boats drifted, 
awaiting Moby Dick's reappearance. At first Ahab saw no sign of the whale, but as he gazed down into the depths of the sea, he began to see the rise of something white and profoundly large, getting larger. Two long, crooked rows of white teeth floated up from the bottom. It was the whale's mouth, wide open and set to destroy the boat in one mouthful. That ain't no whale, that's a great white god. Chapter 25. Down to Hell. Ahab and all the men were immediately thrown into the foaming sea. Ahab's snout was muffled as his head went underwater. Almost immediately he bobbed up to the surface. All around him, men struggled to keep him afloat. Moby Dick was a little distance off, swimming round and round the wrecked crew, churning and lashing water about. In the circling of the lively boys, Moby Dick had created a whirlpool that was sucking the men under. It was all Ahab could do to stay afloat as he thrashed about, holding tightly to Queequeg's massive arm. The Pequod's bow was pointed, and breaking up the charmed circle, she parted the white whale from his victims. As the whale swam off, the other boats flew to rescue Ahab. With the rescue boats, Ahab returned to the ship, soaked to the bone. I expected to see some despair in his eyes, hoping that a return to his senses would call off this savage pursuit. I was wrong. The man was mad. This was the beginning of a long-awaited battle. The next day we set off again after Moby Dick. The earlier defeat from Moby Dick seemed to have little effect on the crew. More than anything, the crew felt the need for vengeance. We sighted the great whale and went after it at once. But for all our gusto, it ended much like the first hunt, with the whale attacking the boats and the crew soaked. Ahab's third attempt at the whale was on the morning of the third day. The sea was calm that morning, and the air was colder. A little mist had formed. Do you see the whale? Ahab's cry sounded through the mist. The men answered, no. The ship moved at a slow pace for hours as we searched for Moby Dick. Noon was fast approaching. Again, Ahab asked if anyone had seen the whale. No, sir. Nothing? And noon is at hand? It was a bad sign. The implication of this was not lost on Ahab. Moby Dick was chasing him now. He knew it. The first signs of worry were beginning to form on his face. Before today we could have declared defeat and went home. We could have called off this maniacal chase and Moby Dick would have let us leave without retribution. But now, it seemed we had directed so much aggression and hatred towards the thing that we were no longer a master of our fate. Moby Dick had turned against us and was now the aggressor. We were going to be exiled, excommunicated from our world. Turning back was now unthinkable. Even now, as Moby Dick had decided to chase us, we could not stop. I could see the hands of Ahab's insanity guiding us on, weaving all the threads of the thirty crew members together. To what purpose? What had we productively accomplished? Were our lives wasted in this wretched abandonment and frenzy? A whole hour passed, and what a long hour it was. Time itself now held long breaths with keen suspense. But at last, off of the bow, Ahab spotted the spout again. There he is, Ahab called. I meet you for the third time, Moby Dick. We must end this. He gave the word, and in due time, his boat was lowered. It was time for him to get on it. He paused and turned to his mate. Starbuck. Sir. For this the last time my soul starts this voyage, Starbuck. You don't have to go, Captain. There's still time to get away. Choose peace. Your wife and little son want you back. There's no shame in giving up this madness. There is one God that is Lord over the earth, and one Captain that is Lord over the Pequod. Down I go. As Ahab got on the boat, a voice cried from the low cabin window, Captain, come back! There are sharks! But Ahab heard nothing. The voice from the cabin window was right. Ahab had barely pushed from the ship when sharks surrounded him. They circled around the boat and without warning began to snap at the blades of the oars. Each time the oars hit water, the sharks bit at them. Suddenly the waters around them rose. Shrouded in a thin veil of mist was the head of Moby Dick. Give way! Ahab cried to the oarsmen. The boat sped forward to attack, but Moby Dick was unusual today. He was angrier, maddened by yesterday's attempts to take him down and the fresh irons that now burned in him. Moby Dick seemed possessed by all the demons of the deep, but curiously in complete control of his faculties. 
He whipped his tail on the water along the boats and the force sent them apart. Iron and lances fell off each side. Seeing that his men had lost their weapons to the sea, Ahab ordered them to go back to the ship. Their presence was of no real use. Moby Dick, satisfied with the havoc he had wrecked, was now steadily swimming forward, almost past the ship. Ahab would not let him be. He set his boat to move even faster. The ruthless sharks followed Ahab's boat, biting the oars as the men rowed. The blade of the oars became jagged and crunched and left small splinters in the sea at almost every dip. Go on, Ahab shouted above the waves. But sir, the thin blades grow smaller and smaller. They will last long enough. Go on. The boat came to the whale's side. Amidst splashes of water and the snapping sharks below, Ahab positioned himself and waited for Moby Dick to give him a good angle. He lifted himself into a pose and darted his fierce iron and his far fiercer curse into the hated whale. Moby Dick now had in him a furious rage that boiled the waters. With deadly speed, he headed straight for the Pequod. Seeing that it was the source of his torment, he bore down upon it. As both steel and curse sank in the flesh, Moby Dick writhed sideways and rolled against the bow, sending three of the oarsmen overboard. Two of three, with a rising wave, hurled themselves on board again, the third man helplessly still afloat and swimming. A hole had appeared in the boat and water was getting in fast. He was going to destroy the ship once and for all. The whale, the ship, cried the soaked oarsman. Go on, let's stop that thing. Will you not save my ship? But as the oarsmen violently forced their boat through the sledge-hammering seas, the disabled boat lay nearly level with the waves. The frantic splashing crew were trying hard to stop the gap and bail out the pouring water. Moby Dick was by the ship now. The crew members stood inactive, holding their harpoons. But what good were any of those against the monster? How could mortal man save himself from this immortality? I saw the whale closer than I'd ever seen it, closer than I ever wanted. Here were men with enough courage and bravery to capture the world, but against the whale were powerless. Moby Dick's solid white forehead whacked the ship's starboard bow till men and timbers reeled. Driving beneath the ship, the whale ran along and rose up to the surface within a few yards of Ahab's boat. Accursed fiend, I will battle you to the last. With hate, I'll spit my last breath at you. Let me break into pieces while I chase you. Ahab threw his harpoon and caught the whale by the side. In pain, Moby Dick flew forward. The harpoon's line zapped around and got caught in the grooves. Ahab tried to straighten it out, but as the whale sped this way and that, the line spiralled and caught Ahab around the neck. He shot out of the boat with the line tight around the neck, hit the water and sank quietly. The crew members didn't know he was gone. Their boat was now filled with water and they cried out, hoping to get back on the Pequod. But while they had looked away, the whale had dealt the ship a last and final blow. There was no hope for the boat's crew, for in the distance, the Pequod sank. My God! The ship! Great God, where is the ship? A whirlpool came for the boat's crew, seizing the boat and spinning it in a vortex until they were carried away far from the sinking ship. Seabirds sang and called to each other as Captain Ahab's crew perished. The Pequod stuck in a whirlpool the whale had created and spun and spun and the sea rolled on and on as it had rolled for a thousand years. And so the Pequod's crew sank, and the captain with it, but one survived. I, Ishmael. By a stroke of fate or luck, as the Pequod was destroyed, I was slowly drawn towards the vortex. I revolved round and round, drinking in the seawater, my mind turned to Queequeg, but I could not call his name. The sea was bent on feeding me its salt waiter. All would have been lost had Queequeg's coffin not floated to my side. Owing to its great buoyancy, the coffin had shot from the sea, fell over and drifted beside me. Queequeg's wooden god Yojo had come also to the surface. The powerless god looked up at the sky while it bobbed up and down at the mercy of the sea. Oh, false god, how he had believed in you! and now he's dead. Sustained by that coffin, I grieved my friend. 
Sharks glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths, and the savage seahawks did not harm me. I thought of him, he who called me Ishmael, and wept. On the second day, a sail drew near, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the ship, Rachel. In her search for her missing children, she had found another orphan. The End The original book, Moby Dick, is in the public domain in the United States as well as most other countries. This adaptation and illustrated story of Ishmael is copyrighted to the extent it is allowed by law. This original story, adapted from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, was authored by Levi F. Barber. Volume 2, the continuation of Ishmael's story, may be released soon. You can find the publisher information at www.contemplatebooks.com.